Welcome to episode 11 of OT Conversations That Matter, the podcast, focusing on advocacy in the profession. My name is Justine Jecker, and I will be hosting today's episode on advocacy with our CAOT policy analyst, Emily Montour, and occupational therapist, Holly Reed. In the new competencies for occupational therapists in Canada, 2021, there are two specific competency indicators that speak to how occupational therapists are expected to engage in advocacy. First, that OTs advocate for environments and policies that support sustainable occupational participation. And secondly, that OTs advocate for alignment between OT standards and processes, organizational policies, social justice, and emerging best practices. This podcast will attempt to provide some practice, practice examples of these competency indicators in action. For me personally, advocacy is a skill set that I'm continually learning about and attempting to work on. I feel that there is as much advocacy needed within the profession as outside the profession. For instance, we have one national association with several provincial associations, provincial chapters, and 10 regulators. How we engage in the practice of occupational therapy is as much defined by where we live in the country as to what organizations we are affiliated with. I believe this has made it a challenge to advocate for occupational therapy outside of the profession, as we are not fully unified within the profession. A good example of how this is of how we experience this is how we collect health human resource data. We currently do not have a strong system in place that tells us where the OT shortages exist or where advocacy is specifically needed in different areas of practice in the profession. I believe that the next step for our profession is to come to consensus on what it means to be a Canadian occupational therapist. I'm going to turn things over to Emily to introduce herself. Hi, everyone, and thank you, Justine and Holly, for inviting me to the podcast today. So as Justine mentioned, I'm the policy analyst at CAOT, and I'm in the process of transitioning to the position of project lead within CAOT's professional practice team. Before I dive into my relationship with advocacy and my thoughts on its role within the OT scope of practice, I'll take a moment to introduce and situate myself. I currently reside in the city of Montreal on the traditional unceded territory of the Kenyan Kehaka, a place which has long served as the site of meeting and exchange among many First, Nation, First Nations, including the Kenyan Kehaka of the Odo, Odenoshone Confederacy, the Huron-Wendat, the Abenaki, and the Anishinaabe nations. I was born and raised as a Franco-Ontarian in rural eastern Ontario on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe nation, and I've used the pronouns she and her. I studied international economics and development, and I've worked on Parliament Hill with federal MPs, as well as for a national progressive policy think tank, before I made the jump to the world of healthcare when I joined CAOT. Advocacy for me has, a long has long been woven into my career choices. I often ask myself, how can I support individuals and groups who have been left behind, or what can I do to bring about positive change at a systems level? At its most basic, advocacy is defined as any action that speaks in favor of, recommends, argues for a cause, supports or defends, or pleads on behalf of others. Most of us will frequently engage in small acts of advocacy, oftentimes without realizing it. Whether it's within your family, in your community, at work, alone, or as part of a group, someone that takes an action with progress or betterment for the well-being of others as the intention they are advocating. 
In my role at CUT, I've focused on advocating for increased awareness and accessibility to, of occupational therapy in Canada, and I've also supported OT-led advocacy initiatives and advocacy skills development. With their mission of enhancing the occupational lives of their clients and as a result of increasing their health and well-being, I believe that OTs and OTAs are well positioned to be strong advocates. I often hear that OTs have the competencies to be advocates and that it should be an integral, integral part of one's practice. But I think it's important to reflect further on that because not all OTs have the knowledge and skills to advocate successfully and efficiently. So the question I come back to is, what is the profession doing to support OTs and student OTs in developing their advocacy skill set, especially now that it's included in the comp new competencies for occupational therapists in Canada? I'll pass over to Holly now. Hi, everyone, and thanks, Justine and Emily, for welcoming me onto this conversation today. Uh, so my name is Holly. I'm a trans non-binary OT. I use they, them pronouns. And today I'm joining the conversation from Wasanich Territory, which is home to the Tsartlip, Sekum, and Sewout peoples. Um, it is absolutely a privilege to be able to live and work on these lands, and I split my time between here and on Musqueam Territory near what's also called Vancouver. Um, I recognize that although I'm a Métis person, I'm an unwanted guest on these lands, as my family um, came to settle here from the Red River homelands near what's now called Winnipeg. I have a deep appreciation for the peoples who are the original custodians of these lands, and I encourage everyone listening to take some time to think about where they are and what that means to them to be situated on those lands. Now, in terms of our conversation today, I believe there are always layers to advocacy, and the challenge can often be finding an advocacy avenue that we actually have access to. I once heard someone describe it as little a advocacy and big a advocacy, and that really stuck with me over the years. How can I engage in small acts of advocacy today that will have a ripple effect months and years from now? I find there are times where the results are quick and then there are times where it can take months or years or decades um, for change to actually be actioned. I typically find myself advocating for policies, processes and spaces to be safer and more inclusive for queer and trans people who are consistently left at the margins due to the gender binary and heteronormative structures of society. The goal is ultimately to advocate for safe and equitable opportunities that not only benefit gender diverse people, but also with uh, people with disabilities, people of color and other historically marginalized people and communities. So essentially it's um, using an intersectionality lens to um, advocate for beyond just the gender binary, as I was saying, and really those intersections of how other identities impact people's positions and what their needs are in society. Um, this also happens to be the focus of my PhD, so I'm always articulating it differently every time I try to explain it. Um, so that's a little bit about where I'm at in terms of this conversation. And thanks again for having me, and I will pass it back over to Justine to get us started with the first question. Thank you both Emily and Holly for your introductions, your positionalities, and acknowledging the lands that we're situated on. Um, Emily, you've identified a really good question that wasn't part of our lineup, but I'm going to be circling back to you on, you know, what is Canada doing to prepare OTs, o OTs and OTs in their education to address advocacy? Uh, but to get us started, um, in thinking of the first competency that I read out earlier, what are some day-to-day -day examples of where occupational therapists can advocate for environments and policies that support sustainable occupational participation? There's many examples of those, and I think they can they can fall into different categories. OTs can advocate, I think, at the macro level. So, for example, OTs taking part in in 
technical committees to build accessibility standards. For example, the, currently the development of the long-term care services standards in Canada, there is an OT on the technical committee that is contributing to ensuring um, that there's sustainable occupational participation within long-term care settings in Canada. So that's more on the macro level. But there's also, I think, advocacy examples where OTs advocate within even their own workplace. An example of this is, um, so you'll have all OTs working, say, in Indigenous communities, that, and it requires a certain amount of advocacy within their own workplace to allocate more time than their clinical hours to build those relationships within the communities and within uh, with their clients. So even ensuring that your practice is culturally sensitive can require a certain amount of advocacy within your own uh, workplace with your colleagues. So those are two examples, I think, where you have the, that those different settings in which advocacy is required. I agree, and I like the example you gave where you talk about the long-term care standards being more of like the macro macro level. Um, I was thinking about this question, and one thing that stood stood out to me was the sustainability aspect. And I hadn't necessarily thought about advocacy that way before, where we're not trying to just make a difference or advocate for something right now for this one client and solve one problem. It's how is this going to be sustainable for others and long-term occupational participation? So what came to mind for me was thinking about something like inclusive design and universal design, and how can we start now to design something for the future so that when people are in this space trying to engage in occupations, whether it's daily occupations, ADLs, um, whatever it might be, rather than need needing an OT to come in later and do modifications and change the whole environment, what if we planned it from the beginning at the macro level of building an entire building that's universally accessible, whether it's planning every door handle instead of a knob, it's a lever or automatic door straight across the board. Maybe there's not going to be any steps in this building. It's all elevator access, whatever it might be. Um, and then the other thing that came to mind was more on a MISO level, maybe. So um, the BC Raha program, so that's the rebate for accessible home adaptations. There's funding available, but that had to be advocated for. So there's funding available for people who need home modifications done, but an OT assessment is required for that. And Emily, I'm, I think you're aware of this program and could probably speak to it in a bit more detail than I can. I just know th through my work with Tanya Fox, who's the regional director for BC, um, like it takes advocacy to make these policy level or um, higher level changes. And so even though it's day-to-day -day advocacy, over time it ends up being larger changes, which are really important for that sustainability aspect. Um, and then the last one that I thought about was more macro level um, partnering or being involved in the government level decisions. And so maybe that's more in line with the long-term care standards where there's policies, someone needs an um, OT at that table so there is an occupational perspective and there is function being included in those conversations. So those are a few things that came to mind for me. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed those different examples uh, from both of you. I mean, one of the things shining through that I'm hearing is this idea of occupational therapists being pioneers for accessibility and really taking on an advocacy role as a preventative measure as opposed to uh, being a reactive solution, which is quite often how we're positioned. And I think I think our current context of COVID has really highlighted how important prevention is needed in healthcare in general. But I think that that is a unique 
way to think of the occupational rule and advocacy is that if we set up these things now, we're preventing a litany of issues later down the road. And it also empowers people early on to think about how they'll change over their lifespan. It gets you thinking a little bit more of, you know, your own morality and your, you know, how long your or mortality, I should say, how long you're going to be on this planet and how you see yourself moving around in the world. Um, and, and I think that that's really unique because not probably not too many professionals are having those kind of conversations with clients. And another thing I wanted to identify, I think, with COVID and advocacy was one of two things happened, um, which really shifted our roles. So when when COVID happened and clinics were shutting down and, you know, only essential services were being offered, some OTs were just completely losing their clientele and their ability to provide services where others were being seconded and they were used, they were being used at the absolute maximum of their capacity. And I think it goes to show that it does depend geographically where you're situated, the type of area of practice you're working in, uh, and the understanding of what occupational therapists can do. And so I think advocacy is is regionally determined, right? So we're, we're you know, airing this podcast as a national association, but I think um, it, this this competency is unique because it's speaking to where you are contextually, where you are in Canada. What we're all experiencing COVID, but I think OTs across the country were really impacted differently. Um, and then another piece to that, and Emily, you were speaking to this a little bit, is around the extended health benefits piece. I think very few um, occupational therapists in Canada can say that they haven't heard of how this is an issue within our profession, but. Uh, just, you know, the public being aware of who we are, um, knowing how to access us. Uh, that's a huge, you know, we live this day to day. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's an issue we live day to day as OTs, but we don't necessarily have a solution for it. And so there is a disconnect between experiencing the problem and finding the solution. And I really think that that's where both the small A advocacy and the big A advocacy you talked about, Holly, come together. So this does bring me to the second competency that I introduced uh, in the podcast introduction. And, and this is a really loaded competency. I almost had trouble reading it. Um, but it's this idea that, you know, as OTs, we are expected to advocate for an alignment between occupational therapy standards and processes. So that's one thing. Organizational policies, social justice and emerging best practices. Um, that's that's four major things happening. And so I'm wondering, Emily and Holly, if you could provide, even if you take two of those four things, an, an example of what that might look like for an everyday OT. Thank you, Justine. It definitely is an important question to discuss. And as you said, it's very loaded. I believe that OTs and decision makers within the profession have indeed for a long time endeavored to align OT standards and processes, organizational policies and emerging best practices as the profession naturally learns and grows. And while social justice has been present within those conversations that surround change, it's never featured as prominently as it does today. So I'd like to just look a bit more closely at the definition of social justice, which refers to actions taken to facilitate the removal of external barriers to opportunity and well-being. And so advocating for an alignment between social justice and standards and processes 
may look like recognizing that every client has a culture and has beliefs and traditions that should be taken into consideration in order for the client to first off access OT services and secondly feel safe throughout the service with the OT. Um, as an example, this could look like a private practice that has policies to allow OTs to dedicate more time to relationship building or increased access to resources in time for OTs to learn and reflect on their own positionality. In 2015, in her article on the quality of life participation in occupational rights, Karen Wally Hamill noted that while OTs have made considerable gains in addressing physical environments, there has been much less attention paid to social, economic, political, or institutional elements of the environment that afford or prohibit occupational possibilities. I like to think of this, and because when I look at our at this competency, I like to think that advocacy work happens both at the level of cases and causes. When we took talk about case advocacy, we look at representing vulnerable individuals or groups with the aim of promoting their rights and opportunities. And when we consider cause advocacy, we acknowledge that structural factors need to be addressed to create occupational opportunities for all. Bonnie Kirsch also discusses this further in her 2015 Memorial Driver Lecture. So with that in mind, Advocating for social justice within the scope of practice of OT entails considering social, economic, political, legal, or institutional barriers to participation and occupation for both individuals and groups, and ways in which organizational policies, standards and practices, standards and processes, and emerging, be emerging best practice could contribute to alleviating or removing those barriers. At, um, at COT, we have this, this saying that while talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. And we've seen over the last few years amidst the pandemic and as more light is shed on historical oppression that oppressions that persist, so many communities continue to face and experience trauma and distress in response to social, political and cultural oppression. So addressing systems of oppression directly at the individual or community and social political level so little A advocacy and capital A advocacy is more important than ever and should also be an integral part of an OT's solution and intervention plan. Yeah, I really like what you said, Emily, and I think you raise a lot of really important points. Um, my head kind of swirls when I think about this question because it is so loaded, like there's so much in it. So the question was framed, how can OTs advocate for alignment between OT standards, processes, and social just, justice. And so whenever I think about social justice, um, I really think about starting with that social accountability and reflexivity. And that's something that we've talked about on previous episodes, where um, before OTs think that we need to step in and advocate, why? What's our position? How are we picturing us in relation to our client? Um, and even, Emily, you said something about um, any culture that's different, it could be Indigenous communities or it could be um, any other culture. It's the concept of social difference because OTs consider ourselves to be culturally neutral, which is a problem to begin with because that's not true. Every single person has a culture. Um, and so when we try and be neutral and stay objective, what we're doing is creating social difference with every client that we see. And then that in itself can become a barrier. And so for me, when I think about social justice, it's really how can we turn that process upside down and instead of using Eurocentric models and um, like colonial frameworks, essentially, that are taught in OT school, how, how can that be changed? 
because that's happening at a level where students are being informed and instructed from a perspective that's going to be um, rather than culturally competent, structurally competent. Because I think the conversation is really moving away from cultural competency and towards structural competency. And I think you use cultural safety, which is, again, another progression from cultural competency. And then there's cultural humility. So becoming more aware of what is culture and how is that impacting people's occupations. I'm totally on your wavelength, Holly. And it's, you know, going back to the words, like even just the the phrasing alignment between occupational therapy standards and processes there's an assumption that there's an acceptance of them right so even before we can talk about aligning all these massive things together have we accepted them have we accept what our ot standards and processes are because i think that that's what's happening right now is we are we are totally blowing up the house right we're, we're trying to say okay we're not feeling comfortable with a lot of frameworks that exist in our profession um, you know, we have a new book that's going to be coming out in um, uh, at our COT conference in May 2022 that's going to be uh, reflective of our views of how who we are as occupational therapists. And, and so it, it is, I, I, I feel that this is going to probably take us 10 years before we're at a place where we're feeling comfortable with our own standards and processes. And then this idea of then aligning them with social justice and best, best practices, because it is it goes much bigger than our profession i think once we take what's in our profession and we try to apply it outside of our profession we have to look for where there's congruency and where there's support does the healthcare system in general support the idea of social justice you know are we there yet as healthcare providers because i feel that in order to align we interprofessionally have to be on the same page right because social justice isn't achieved by one person or in a vacuum of just occupational therapists, we need to be working with the physicians, with the nurses, with the physiotherapists, you know, you name it. Um, even, of course, un unregulated healthcare providers play a huge part in this. And so, so I think that, I think this competency is an important reminder of what the beacon we're shooting towards and where we should be heading in, in that direction. Um, I'll be interested to see the resources that come out for OTs to try to support them to reach this. I will say, um, in my, my personal opinion, I do think that this is not going to be the easiest thing for many OTs working in a clinical, uh, strictly clinical environment to feel like they can achieve on a day-to-day -day basis. I, as somebody who works in a, a full-time um, non-clinical um, virtual role where my job is dedicated towards leadership, I feel that Yes, this is something that I can strive towards, but I do, you know, I do look forward to getting feedback from this podcast from everyday practicing OTs, you know, is this something you feel you're going to be able to achieve that's set out in the new competencies. For our next question, Emily, I'm going to try to align the question you brought in in your introduction with this with our, our third question today. So you had asked us, you know, what are we doing in Canada to prepare occupational therapists and OTAs in their education to become advocates? So really ident identifying that as a role. And our third question was, was kind of an extension of that. It was looking at how professional development promote, um, or sorry, uh, supports occupational therapists with advocacy. So it's, it's kind of a two-part question. Are we doing enough in our current education to prepare OTs 
And where are the professional development opportunities, uh, typically post-licensure for OTs? Uh, so I'm going to turn things over to you, Emily, to get us started. I, could, I think I could talk for just nonstop based on that question, but I'll try and uh, keep it concise. I think it's important, something that we don't talk a lot when we're talking about advocacy skill set. It's almost like we're looking at it from a very academic, like it's something that you train and then, you know, you're, it can be applied on paper, but it really, I think in di the differences between a lot of competencies and advocacy is that it incorporates your personal identity. It's very, and Holly referred to this, you know, looking at an OT being culturally neutral. When we're engaging in advocacy initiatives, there's the successful advocacy initiative requires emotion, empathy, desire, motivation, and desire for change. And then, so how are we creating a structure that not only creates a space for students to develop that advocacy like identity, and it goes beyond just an advocacy identity because it's what is your identity, right? How do you, and it requires self-reflection, which can be challenging. And how is that put into practice? How do you build relationships around this, um, you know, those values that you've identified? We've talked a lot in about different examples at macro level. Something that also happens at a, just a very MISO level is when you're advocating for clients to say, have access to funding for their for their services. If you're advocating to an insurance company, if you're advocating for your client to be included in a peer support group, that's very individual. It, and it it comes back to what it, that relationship that you build with your client and you're advocating on their behalf, but you're advocating with them and not always only for them. So and this just goes to this is one aspect of the very large uh, or very complex dynamic of advocacy. And I think that, you know, in the in the perfect world, to me, advocacy would almost be incorporated within every aspect of an OT's education from a, a very practical approach, whether it's being a community project approach where you have that experience and you're involved in those advocacy initiatives, or, you know, if you're looking at when you're providing assessments, how can you, how can you have that advocacy hat on? How are you recognizing, you know, how are you being inclusive in, um, in your practice and promote universal access through your interventions? I think um, if we look south of the border, so I've found this incredibly interesting study in which if you, a lot of the universities in the States, the kind of the counseling university programs are incorporating advocacy uh, social advocacy training within their curricula. And what they're seeing is that a lot of students develop this advocacy identity, you know, there's and there's this whole component of internal grappling where you have your this process of intellectual and emotional struggle that lead to you having that um, putting in the energy to learn where are the resources, who should I be engaging with, how do I go about achieving this change at a meso, meso or macro level. Um, and I think the results speak for themselves. A lot of um, a lot of those students years after have continued to incorporate advocacy. And one thing I'll, I'll end on this one note, I, I know I've digressed a little, but 
it's important to have spaces to me within because advocacy requires a certain amount of energy beyond the clinical hours. I think it's important within the profession to start looking if we're incorporating so much advocacy within the competencies, what are we doing to shift our practices so that there is time for OTs to participate in standards development? There is time to, you know, go at either that macro level or to advocate in a workplace or provincial governments, community, you know, municipal uh, governments, federal because oftentimes OTs need to do this on their own time and that's an unpaid work. And so that's a huge barrier to advocacy. So there's always the traditional, you know, webinars, mentorship, communication skills. Those are things that, you know, CAUT does provide uh, for students and OTs, but the profession itself, I think there's a lot that can be done to promote advocacy. Yeah, I really like what you've just described. I think I've said that after every one of your answers, Emily, um, but you really did a nice job summarizing it, but giving the details, like calling it advocacy identity. And I hadn't heard it actually framed that way before or articulated that way. And I think it is an identity that over time is strengthened when somebody does more and more advocacy. And so what I wanted to mention um, in my response here is that I don't think I've ever met an occupational therapist who doesn't engage in some type of professional development and that can be like attending a webinar after work hours it's usually a course on a weekend things that they aren't always paid for but sometimes paid for um, and advocacy can just become one of those things that they integrate into professional development but it is a skill that takes time and practice it may even take mentorship it can take support debriefing uh, preparing before doing something that involves advocating it's a big undertaking and so i think realizing that as ot's we also don't have to take on the whole world it feel it can feel really overwhelming um but i think there are like i said i i called them avenues of advocacy um also like the sphere of influence i'm not sure if you said that or if i had read that elsewhere but um really just figuring out what are the possibilities and what do i have the energy for and the time for and all of that on like an individual basis um, but then when I think more about advocacy big picture, um, I think about, again, the theories and the models and the research that's informing our practice, because that's where occupational science informs occupational therapy. And so if the research is being done in a way that um, incorporates or um, really promotes advocacy work, then perhaps over time it gets integrated more into what we're actually doing. And I recently was reading a paper by um, Brenda Began, and what she did with her co-authors was basically interrogated or um, analyzed the Canadian model of occupational performance and engagement so that it could be integrated with more of an Indigenous view, worldview. And although the authors aren't Indigenous, they use their position as allies to advocate to have more indigeneity incorporated into the existing models. And so by doing things like that, I think there's advocacy happening even in that, even though it's research, maybe focused on one model at a time. To me, that's still advocacy because the students who are in the Canadian OT programs are now learning that model and then it informs their practice also maybe makes them realize that they too can advocate advocate for changes, even though that model is quite a few years old. It was revised in 2019 and now that's the one being referred to. So I think there's different ways of thinking about advocacy, which can be really exciting. And then that's also what can be overwhelming. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is I really like when you talked about it being relation based. 
And I think anytime we're going to try to advocate for something, basically what we're doing is saying, this isn't working and this is what you need to do instead. And in order to criticize anything that somebody is doing, whether it's somebody being a person or somebody being an organization, there has to be a pre-existing relationship. And this is something as I go through my own studies and learn more about um, indigenous knowledge and ways of being, relationality is everything. And so by having pre-existing relationships with people, the chance of your advocacy efforts being more successful, it goes way up because somebody is more likely to listen to you if they if they know you, they know your positionality, your identity, all of that. So I think the relationship is a really important piece and I just didn't want that to get overlooked, Emily and Justine. Awesome. That, that's such a great synopsis, Holly. And, you know, th there's two major things in listening to both of your sharings that I'm I'm pondering right now. And so so the first thing coming from what you're talking about, um, Emily, is this idea of, a, of developing a skill set, right? So both pre-licensure students and post-licensure uh, clinicians being able to feel that they have the skills to advocate. Um, that's something it's when I when I reflect on even just my engagement as a part time faculty and um, and just being in touch with different curriculum across Canada, you know, I feel like I know the areas that are being taught that teach students how to do assessments, how to do intervention, how to develop clinical reasoning, but a specific session where there's somebody who comes in and says, well, this is how you be an advocate or this is what a skill set looks like to be an advocate. I think that that is incredibly important in our profession because um, we have two indicators that specifically use the word advocate, but as you've identified, there's probably a dozen more in the new competencies that are alluding and speaking to this idea of engaging in advocacy. So I think, I think we should have a more concerted effort as a profession to ensure that we are teaching these advocacy skills pre-licensure and then post-licensure also teaching them um, and maybe maybe doing it in a way that helps students and clinicians identify, okay, this is micro level working with the clinician advocacy and this is systems level advocacy where you know we're trying to change policy or um, the example that you gave Holly, even being able to use it in research, that's a very powerful way to demonstrate advocacy, right? Because it 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 becomes it because it, it's written down. It becomes a permanent example of how others could follow that. Um, and then a point that you were making too, Holly, this idea of being explicit or saying it out loud, like this is an advocacy example. Um, when I think of our current evaluation methods in Ontario, and I want to bounce back to you, Holly, after this because I know you can speak from a UBC perspective, but. Um, in Ontario and at Mac, they use the CBFE currently to evaluate students, which could be changing, you know, in the near future, depending on uh, the implementation, uh, the progress of the new competencies. But, you know, using the seven areas right now, they focus on practice knowledge, communication, clinical reasoning, assessment intervention, professional development, performance management and professional interactions. So those are kind of the major areas that are focused on. And as you get into them, there's language that speaks, you know, loosely, vaguely around the concept of, of advocacy. But I wonder that if, you know, with now a universal national um, competency standard, if, if a new national competency evaluation comes out for students on placement, how different it might look if we had a section on advocacy or if we use that language more explicitly 
um, students would then feel, okay, this is something that I need to do during my, the course of my placement and demonstrate. Uh, because in you know recent, I think of the last, I don't know, two, three sets of students that I've had, we're not really talking about advocacy, if I'm being honest. I mean, we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about practice knowledge and the profession itself, but it's similar. If you don't make feedback, giving and receiving feedback a priority, if you don't make advocacy the focus, are you really going to be engaging in it? Yeah, I think it's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about it that way before. And in BC, we also use the CBFE. Um, and something that came to mind for me when you said that is when I was on placement, I remember kind of going through the process of, I don't know what the, if it's a model or if it was just a chart we were shown one time, but when OT students are starting the OT journey, we have what's called conscious incompetency, where we're very conscious that we're incompetent. And I don't mean like incompetent as a person, but with our OT skills, we're not yet at a point where we'd be expected to be an entry-level clinician. And then we move to, um, uncon um, oh, I'm going to mess the, up the progression, but you end up being unconsciously competent. So as an occupational therapist, you are not consciously aware of your competencies. And so my point I'm trying to make is that as, as a student, when you're starting out and you're very aware of what you're not yet competent of, it's a really good time to practice those things, making them very explicit. So if as a student, you were to have to clinically reason out loud to your preceptor, this is how I'm advocating, this is how I'm advocating. In each different situation, I think that would be a really good way for people to become more aware that they actually do advocate and the preceptor would also realize, oh yeah, I'm advocating in on all these ways too. They're just not conscious of it. So it's maybe an opportunity for shared learning even in that environment. If I could just jump in and add something here. Um, I think based on our conversation today, something that really resonates to me is that with these new competencies, we're shifting to basically OTs are shifting to adopting a practice that's grounded in inclusiveness and that promotes universal access to equity. And I think that in and of itself, and when we're thinking about advocacy within the profession, we're thinking of about having that as a mode of thinking, as a therapeutic tool and as an ethical responsibility. And so looking at that, and I would encourage any OTs or anyone listening to this podcast to also read uh, Bonnie Kirsch, the Memorial Driver um, Lecture in 2015. The title of her, her lecture was Transforming Values into Action Advocacy as a Professional Imperative. And she very much refers to this, where does advocacy fit within the role of OT and that it branches into every aspect of um, the scope of practice. And so based on that, it should also be included within every aspect of the training. So just a thought to, to, to add to the conversation here. Thank you so much for sharing those resources today, Emily and Holly, you as well. I think some awesome references um, have been provided today and I'm really excited to hear the feedback from clinicians, from students on this podcast episode. Uh, we've taken the liberty of extending our time today because it, advocacy is a really tough topic to have a 30 minute conversation about. and. And I think there's there's just so much opportunity to to grow and expand on this um, at CAOT. Just as a reminder for our listeners, we are nationally representing all occupational therapists in Canada from an advocacy perspective, and so are all of your provincial associations across the country, as well as our CAOT chapters. So um, there there are a lot of people interested in in doing the work and promoting advocacy within the profession, as well as our regulators. 
Um, and, it, and so if you have questions or you want to get involved, um, it's a really great place to start is reaching out to the association. A lot of our practice networks as well at CAUT and beyond CAUT, I would say arguably any occupational therapy practice network is probably engaging in some form of advocacy. And so um, getting involved is sometimes just starting by having a conversation and finding out what can you be doing. And uh, for those interested in wanting to reach out in response to the podcast, you can respond to this by contacting practice at caot.ca and let us know if you want to be on a future podcast episode. And I want to thank Emily and Holly for an amazing discussion today. If you have any final words before we wrap up. Just smiles. <laughs> well, thank you to Justine and Holly. I think this was, um, I could probably talk about advocacy. There's so many more ideas I want to inject into the conversation. And maybe maybe I'll advocate for more podcasts on the matter. Um, but wishing everyone, you know, best of um a great day and at the same time advocacy is something that can be done in all aspects and so if ever you're someone that feels strongly about uh, a certain uh, issue you know whether it's a social issue whether it's an uh, at work reach out as as justine say reach out to caot we're there to support thanks so much thank you both again for having me on uh, it's always a pleasure so yeah take care thanks holly we'll see you next time everyone Thank you.